am rolling if you are ready. And here we go in three, two, one. What the heck is going on? This is way over our heads. It's a weather and climate podcast. I'm Jim Dubois. Kenny Blumenfeld's a climatologist. Uh, Kenny, we're recording this on Sunday afternoon, the 21st of March. I just walked outside. It's got that look, that feel, and that smell of precipitation. Is this something to look forward to? We talked in our last episode about how dry we are. Is there hope? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, it's kind of been a windy weekend. It's been mild. What else is new? It's like mild, mild, mild. But um, we are, as you mentioned, we've been in a dry pattern. And I think that because now we've been, you know, predominantly dry for several months in parts of Minnesota, if you go to southwestern parts of the state, we're coming up on a year where it's, where it's been, you know, in, in some cases, even over a year where it's just been, it's been mostly dry. Sure. You had a couple wet months, but it's been mostly dry. And so we're starting to get that D word in there. It's starting to talk about drought. It's not, it's not crippling or debilitating at this point, but we've got these kind of month over month precipitation deficits. And so we're kind of at the point where we can't look to a single weather system to bail us out. That's, you know, when you're, when you've got a two month long precipitation deficit, you can get reversed in one or two events, but when you're, you're getting on, you know, months and months in the making, it's going to take a little more, but you're right. We do have, we, (laughs) we do have some precipitation coming and it'll be good news because it's going to hit Southwest Minnesota the hardest and they, along with far northwestern Minnesota, have been, I'd say, the, the, the most in deficit in terms of uh, precipitation. So they've had sort of the sharpest drought-like conditions. So they need the precipitation the most. And at least southwestern Minnesota is going to get hit pretty square by this one. So that's good. I don't think it's going to, it's not going to turn us around completely. But it's, you know, it's a sign of hope anyway. What we need then, Jim is, you know, well-timed precipitating weather systems uh, one to two times a week, each one dropping a half inch to an inch. And we need that right through at least the beginning of the growing season. Otherwise those, you know, that's kind of what you need now. We're getting to the point where you need a half an inch of precipitation a week just to keep pace. And if you don't get uh, even a little more than that, you start falling behind as you get into, uh, as you get into, especially as you get into April and then really May. I mean, if, if we're not getting an inch of precipitation a week, by the time we get to mid-May, we're, we're in trouble. So, so yeah, this could be the beginning of some hope. We're certainly in an active pattern. But, you know, I just started babbling. How are you, Jim? <laughs> you know, Kenny, I'm doing well. Actually, <laughs> I made you start babbling because I hit you with a question before I greeted you. So I'm doing well, Kenny. How are you doing? Uh, you know, it's I've enjoyed the warm weather this weekend. It's been a little bit dry, uh, you know, with the wind and the low relative humidities. You had to be careful for, you know, you don't want to ignite anything and uh, and you know cause thousands of acres to burn. But um, but you know, it's been it's been so mild for really since the whole winter, with the exception of a couple of weeks in February. That there's a, there's a 
part of this where we don't realize how out of place it is. I mean, 60 degrees in March is not extraordinary by any stretch of the imagination, but it's well above normal. We are, we are well above normal, but we've been that way so frequently this winter that you, you might forget that, you know, uh, waking up to 42 degrees is, is much warmer than you'd normally expect to be in the morning uh, in the middle of March. So I've been enjoying it, but uh, uh, like you mentioned, kind of looking forward to some widespread precipitation. I'm always hoping for something exciting too. Give me a snowstorm or give me, <laughs> give me some severe weather. I suppose we should talk about that severe weather from uh, yeah. March, March 10th. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. That yeah. would have been the 10th. You are correct. Yeah. So we can recap that real quickly. I mean, we had a tornado watch issued for southeastern Minnesota that evening. I think that was, what, Wednesday the 10th. And that was the second earliest day on record um, that we know of anyway. And, and probably since the Weather Service has been issuing watches for our region, uh, probably the second earliest date to have a tornado watch on record in Minnesota. Uh, the earliest would have been March 6th. That was just a few years ago, 2017. But uh, here in 2021, we had tornado watches, or one anyway, being issued on uh, on the 10th. And there were super cell thunderstorms that were rotating. They kind of had a classic look to them. You may have seen some really uh, neat pictures. The only real impact that these storms had, fortunately, was they, they dropped some large hail. We had tennis ball-sized hail falling uh, in parts of Dakota County. This was the uh, conglomerate hailstone type. So rather than these perfect, large, kind of um, nicely laminated looking tennis balls, these were actually pieces of other hailstones that had kind of mashed together and then gotten iced. So they get tend to be kind of spiky. And uh, yeah, so we had some large hail, no tornadoes. Uh, quite a few tornado warnings were issued because these storms, they looked convincing, uh, especially on radar but uh, no confirmed tornadoes from those. So we still have yet to notch a tornado this year, but that would have been very early. It also would have been our second earliest tornado day on record. So that was kind of the big, the big story. And then a few days later, we had this kind of big weather system come in from the Southwest and drop some heavy snow on uh, basically far Southern Minnesota where the I-90 corridor and over towards Rochester, that whole area got eight to 12 inches of snow. Up here in the Twin Cities, we just got, you know, it was nice. We got, you know, two to four inches uh, and then virtually nothing off to the north and east of that. And that was all associated with that massive, uh, that massive Nebraska storm that just put the lights out in Cheyenne, Wyoming with, uh, you know, 30 inches of snow and and parts, parts of the panhandle of Nebraska, where they, they got a season's worth of snowfall in about two days. So, uh, but yeah, so now we're caught up and uh, just kind of hoping it rains. Well, we did get some of that much. <clears throat> we did get some of that much needed snow a little while back, as you mentioned. And I know everybody gets excited when you're talking drought and any kind of precipitation comes down. But uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Snow, generally speaking, there's only about a tenth of an inch of water in every inch of snow. Is that a good ballpark average to throw out? Yeah, that, that's true. Although as snow uh, 
as, as snow sits on the ground longer and longer, it's uh, kind of water equivalent per volume increases because the snow condenses. So the air gets squeezed out and you basically have more, you know, ice or water per volume of air or per volume of snow. So it is, uh, it starts out that way. If there's an inch of snow that falls, you can assume that you got about a tenth of an inch of water in there. However, by the end of winter, if you've got an old snowpack, it might be only three or four inches deep, but it might have an inch, even an inch and a half of water in it. It, it depends on how old it is and, and how much compression has happened over time. But yeah, this was, uh, you know, in the Twin Cities area, it was just a couple tenths, couple to a few tenths of an inch of precipitation in that snow. A bit more in parts of southern Minnesota, I think the Rochester area came out with over an inch of precipitation. And, um, you know, again, along I-90, they did pretty well. So yeah, it is, I mean, it is exciting and hopeful. Uh, I, I would say that from uh, those of us who are kind of monitor the drought situation, we were concerned, we've been concerned that the drought is getting, you know, is gonna really escalate and without some spring precipitation to offset it. Cause this is, the, this is that critical time, Jim, where the temperatures aren't too high yet, right? Uh, the sun is just starting to get strong enough that you get a lot of evaporation, but there's also the, the plants are not conducting any moisture. There's none of that. There's no leafing out yet or not much. And so, so if you put water on the ground, it's going to, you know, and, and it can get into the soil, it's just going to replenish the soil first. There's, it's not going to be taken up by the plants and then imme immediately put back into the atmosphere. So it's a, actually, it's a good time to replenish water. And so any precipitation that we get now is kind of a bonus. So we do, we do get excited. Um, but, you know, again, we need, we need a few of these. And I think the reason that I was, uh, that we put, you know, what the heck is going on as our teaser to this show is I've been thinking a lot about how we don't ever really know what's coming next. And there had been uh, some interesting reporting uh, by one of the mainstream outlets recently about how meteorologists are, are really concerned because we had a big La Nina winter, you know, fairly, fairly strong, kind of a moderately strong La Nina. And the last time we had that, Jim, was in 2011. Now you were back, you were working with the Broadcasters Association and, uh, back in 2011, but do you remember how busy that spring was from a severe weather standpoint? It certainly was in a couple of uh, standout events in May, May 22nd, of course, comes to mind immediately of 2011. May 20. Hey, that's how we met. That's exactly how, that's how we, we met, met. Kenny. You were, you were, that's you a were great story. A, yes. You were looking for, boy, you, you, what a mistake you made that day. <laughs> we're coming I up mean, on our 10th anniversary, Kenny. I remember, hey. I remember getting this email where it's like, oh yeah, this is a guy looking for some kind of tornado expert. And I was like, well, just lie to him. Tell him I can talk about tornadoes. <laughs> no, that, so yeah, that was, and that was, of course, we were talking about the North Minneapolis tornado. But we were also trying to put that in the context of this massive outbreak on the same day that had produced the, the Joplin, Missouri tornado that killed over 100 people. And then we were also trying to put that in the context of this wild year where we'd had other, I think, you know, prior to the Joplin tornado, if you had stopped 
where we already were before the Joplin tornado, it would have been a blockbuster year and we'd still be talking about it. So the Joplin tornado just kind of added. And uh, there had been a huge outbreak in, uh, on April 27th and two others earlier in the month. So when people say, oh, this year looks a lot like 2011, uh, there's some cause for alarm there because 2011 was, was hellacious. I mean, it was a real violent year, but you kind of have to pause too. So the, when people say they found similarities, these, these are forecasters, they're credible talking about the atmosphere, but what they're really talking about is the, the index that we use to measure the strength of La Nina and El Nino. There's a couple different ways to do it. They're fairly similar, but it's essentially an index of the temperature anomaly of the sea surface conditions. So uh, in, the, in the Pacific Ocean near the equator. And when you kind of add up all of those anomalies, you come up with this index that tells you the, the ocean there is either warm, much warmer than it would normally be, in which case you have an El Nino-like condition, or it's much cooler than it would normally be, in which case you have a La Nina condition. And we are very similar in terms of La Nina condition uh, right now to what we had in 2011. But the thing that caught my attention is that, well, look at where we are sitting right now. I mean, you were just outside, right? I, I was outside, it's March. How much snow did you see on the ground when you were out today? Pretty much zero. Yeah, zilch. Like there's there's nothing left. Now, if we went back to 2011, even at this late stage in the game, there are going to be large mounds of snow any in all the shadows piled up in parking lots because we had a, a huge snowfall season that year. We had a long, cold, snowy winter, and we had major flooding on all the rivers in Minnesota. As that snow melted, we had stream flooding, river flooding, you know, Harriet Island was submerged for a while. I remember taking my students over to Harriet Island as the water was coming up and, you know, trying to see how close it was gonna get to the 1965 line. Cause for a moment we thought they were gonna rival each other. So, okay, if we were cold, you know, and that was, we had the dome buster snowstorm in December, so if we were massively snowy and cold enough to keep snow on the ground for right in through March and then start releasing the water and dealing with flooding from mid-March into mid-April, how similar is that really to where we are this year? And can you just look at the ocean, the ocean condition, you know, out over the Pacific near the equator and look at that and say, well, since we had uh, this condition in 2011, we'll probably see more severe weather like we did in, in that year. We'll probably see more severe weather this year. And I don't think, Jim, that that's maybe the only way to look at it, because if the similarities are that great and it's just going to be a carbon copy, then you would expect our weather to have been very similar to what we had in 2010-11 winter. And it really wasn't. I mean, not anywhere. Yeah, the, there in 2011, there were a couple uh, deep, sort of deep south penetrating snowstorms that were sort of similar to what we had here in, in uh, late February that got everyone's attention down in Texas and whatnot. But 
but but that was that's kind of the only similarity there is we didn't have you know this large uh snowpack forming over the entire uh north central part of the of the u.s this year we didn't have the predominantly cold conditions we kind of had the opposite so it just kind of does make you wonder you know what is going on how do we know how to look forward and diagnose these things and, and you know jim we talk about this a lot i i respect the effort of seasonal forecasting but it's hard and i think it's also honest to admit that we're just not we're getting better, but we're not great at it yet. And we, we have to look at these kind of crude relationships like the ocean temperature, uh, you know, because the ocean temperature is super important, but does it literally drive our weather such that all you need to do is look at the ocean temperature over the equatorial Pacific and you can make a forecast for the Southern US or the Northern US based off of that? No, I don't think we're at, I don't think it's that good of a predictor. I think it's a crude predictor where, you know, the majority of the time when we see this happen, we expect certain conditions, including a cold, snowy winter here. But since we didn't get that, I think we might be a little bit off script. So that's my soapbox diatribe and uh, probably <laughs> difficult to follow. Uh, those are my talking points for this time, but uh, hope that makes sense. It does make sense, Kenny. And um, looking forward to perhaps the day when seasonal forecasting could become more accurate, what are what are some of the missing elements? Is is enough data points? Do we have enough data points at this point? What, what don't we have that we need? Or better yet, do we know what we don't have that we need? Yeah, this is a great question. <laughs> I, I mean, there are probably better people to, to answer it from the the frontier of the science, but I, it's well acknowledged among forecasters, atmospheric scientists, climate scientists, physicists, mathematicians, that there's so much complexity in the atmospheric system because it is, remember, it's three dimensions in motion. So there is so these three dimensions are in constant motion. And so you then have this effect of time, and of course, as these dimensions of the atmosphere, you know, the depth, the, the latitudinal and longitudinal extent, they're also changing as they pass over land masses and then over oceans. And there's just a broad acceptance that that complexity is going to make it really hard to get, to get much more than the kind of directional understanding of where we might be going. Um, no matter how much computational power we have. I mean, there, there's some notion that big data mining um, could help improve, you know, maybe make, maybe make us be able to see out a little bit farther with some, with some certainty. But I, I don't think right now it's a data problem. And I don't think it's an effort problem. It's probably more of a patience problem where we just need to accept that there are some things that we we wish we could do, but we can't do. Um, you know, knowing, for example, that in 10 days, there's going to be a tornado and knowing where that tornado is going to be within 50 miles. We're just so far from, from being able to do that with, by anything other than just dumb luck, you know, or, or maybe well-informed dumb luck. And, but hard to replicate because the same 
the same set of techniques and information that could help you get lucky and make a forecast that 15 days away is pretty good. Uh, there's so much noise or chaos in that same set of circumstances and same set of systems that uh, you, you could easily blow a 15-day forecast, you know, nine, nine times out of 10, maybe 19 times out of 20. And then how much value is there in that one lucky forecast? It kind of turns into that farmer's almanac issue where we remember the ones that are right. And so we ascribe maybe heightened meaning to, uh, to the value of those. And that allows us to maybe ignore the times that we're wrong. And I, I don't think that's a good goal <laughs> for weather forecasting. <laughs> so I think we got some, I think we have, it's probably going to be a breakthrough that we can't foresee yet that will get us there. Cause right now, most scientists expect that we won't be able to do it. And it's not because of computational skill and it's not because of knowledge. It's because there's too much complexity in that system. And it's just too hard to get specific about something that's inherently complex and for which the complexity uh, kind of grows over time. So what I mean by that is if we sit here today and we call it day zero, and we're interested in making a forecast for day 10, well, think of all the assumptions that we have to make about what happens for days one through nine. And even if you can, even if you can uh, manage those assumptions really well, and you can you can sort of codify it into a nice computer program like the like the computational models do. Still, just imagine that there's going to be a slight error on day one, right off the bat, somewhere, and then then how is that error going to propagate into the next days, and how is that going to affect where the weather systems are on day four, and how will that affect where the precipitation is on day six, and by the time you get to day ten. You, you know, you might be, you might be seeing, oh, it's going to be 75 degrees when really what's going to happen is it's going to be 36 because you're on the other side of the same weather system. So we got a ways to go. Um, I, I think that, you know, and that's I, one of the things that I love about this field is that it, it's kind of like live entertainment. We don't really know what's going to happen next. We get some insights enough to say, here's a, here's a good sense of what's happening in the next week and especially in the next couple of days. But, you know, I don't know, Jim, is in 10 days, are we going to be in a hot pattern? Are we going to see severe thunderstorms at the end of March? Are we going to have uh, a major snowstorm? I mean, this is all, these are all reasonable questions. I don't have the answers to them. And that's part of what makes it exciting for me. So now I've really talked myself out. <laughs> well, I mean, that's a great discussion, Kenny. And uh, if folks are feeling a little frustrated right now, thinking that, boy, there is going to be a lot of things we just simply won't know and perhaps cannot know about long-term trends in the weather in terms of forecasting, there is something that folks can do right now that will be very helpful to researchers. And uh, it kind of goes back to what we opened up the podcast with talking about precipitation. There's an opportunity for people who can make a pretty minimal investment in a four inch rain gauge and report that data back 
to scientists. Tell us more about that program, Kenny. Yeah, so there's this great national program, and we are, you know, we don't stand to gain anything by promoting this. This is just a very pro-science message. There's a program that was, it's kind of grassroots. It was begun by climate scientists in Colorado, and it is now a national program. And, you know, precipitation data, that's probably the most important type of weather data we can collect. Um, because the air is fluid and so it changes, you know, the temperature changes uh, pretty gradually over distance, but precipitation events are, are not, they are discontinuous and abrupt. They have pretty sharp boundaries. And so getting good measurements of what actually fell is important. And it's, we've been doing it for over a hundred years and, uh, and we need more people. We always need more data. Data, data is everybody's friend, and we always need more. And so um, you can sign up to be a daily precipitation observer. It's only going to cost you a plastic four-inch manual, not a automatic rain gauge. And you, every time, you know, if it doesn't rain, you put zero. And if it does rain, you enter in how much you measure. It's, it's very elegant and you become part of this incredible national network that uh, goes into the National Weather Service. Uh, anybody who wants it can have access to the information, but the Weather Service uses it for flood monitoring and forecasting. Climatologists use it for you know ground truthing precipitation events and making maps and things like that. It's an incredible public service. It's on par with the service that volunteers uh, perform for uh, the Skywarn storm spotting program. It's just an incredible necessary service. I, it's fair to say, and this isn't hyperbole, that climatologists wouldn't have anything to do without volunteer observers. We'd have nothing to study. We'd have nothing to understand. And people might be surprised that the majority of data that we use and the majority of the data that we use to understand where we've been and where, we're, where we are right now, that's from volunteers. And this COCO-RAS program, it stands for Community Collaborative Rain and Hail, uh, Rain, Hail and Snow. Um, so it's COCO-RAS and it is C-O-C-O-R-A-H-S dot O-R-G. You can sign up right there. Uh, you'll just have to put in some very basic information. And what'll happen is your sign up will then get routed to the National Weather Service, uh, who your sort of local steward from the National Weather Service. And we'll see uh, in the state climate office, we'll see some sign up information there. And then you just go get yourself a rain gauge and there's uh, information on how to do that. And uh, you'll be observing daily precipitation in no time and be, you'll have your data be part of the uh, observing and forecasting infrastructure. It's pretty cool. Uh, it's really neat to you know, measure precipitation. I know you do this, Jim, and I do it, and then kind of see your, see your value on a map or see how your value helped the weather service or, um, or even climatologists understand what happened. So it's C-O-C-O-R-A-H-S dot O-R-G. It's also, we call it COCO-RAS, uh, but it's kind of a mouthful. So C-O-C-O-R-H-S dot O-R-G. 
And uh, yeah, this is actually kind of matters now because we like to sign people up before the wet season, before the growing season, uh, because that's the most important time to measure precipitation. So we want to make sure. So there's a little competition too, uh, Minnesota up against all the other states. And you know what, Jim, is right now, Minnesota is leading the pack. And we want to solidify that. We want to be number one in uh, new devoted Coco Ra's precipitation observers. So one more time. I'm going to say it one okay, more time. Okay, all right. C-O-C-O-R-A-H-S dot O-R-G. Sign up, uh, and we really appreciate it. Uh, the more volunteers we have, the better. Fabulous. So that's about it, Jim. Should we... Uh, Sounds good. We'll also have the link to the Coco Ross site on the Way Over Our Heads website. So that'll make it easy. Well, uh, probably time to sign off. Uh, before we go, though, speaking of precipitation, we've got some on the way. Looking like maybe one to two inches, perhaps, before this is all over sometime uh, Wednesday. Yeah, I mean, it's been a tricky system to nail down. There have been moments where it looked like a real March winter storm with, you know, a foot of snow. Uh, in northern Minnesota, and there have been times where it looked like it was going to produce thunderstorms here, and it's wobbled a little bit. It's had the precipitation kind of surge throughout the state and then be withheld a little bit. I think the signal that's pretty good is probably an inch or so over the southern, southeastern uh, two-thirds or so of Minnesota, you know, so you just kind of draw a line basically from, you know, Duluth to Montevideo or something like that. Everything to the right of that or, you know, to the south and east of that line gets, uh, you know, an inch or more precipitation, including the Twin Cities. Uh, in far southwestern Minnesota, you know, from the Minnesota River on southwest, I, I could see areas getting closer to two inches. And this is, again, where they really need it most. Unfortunately, northwestern Minnesota looks like it's going to miss out on this. And they are also in the, the highest level of drought in the state, which is uh, mostly moderate drought. But there's a tiny little sliver of severe drought in uh, far northwestern Minnesota. So we, we do want precipitation up there. It doesn't look like this is the one. Uh, the snowstorm signal is a little bit less than it had been. But again, I, I wouldn't be surprised if you know these things... These things do change a bit in the one to two days before they hit. And we're talking about precipitation beginning, mostly beginning Monday night, and then kind of really taking off on Tuesday and into Wednesday, and then getting out of here during the day on Wednesday. I would say most areas will have, uh, you know, especially south and east of uh, basically Montevideo and Duluth, most areas will have three quarters to one and a quarter inches of precipitation mostly as rain there will be some there will be some snow up in north central minnesota uh, a little less precipitation but still might get several inches and then uh parts of southwest minnesota getting closer to two inches well enjoy the rain happy astronomical spring and uh, kenny we'll reconvene in a week and uh, talk about some more stuff very good <laughs> thanks jim enjoy your week this is Way Over Our Heads. It's a weather and climate podcast. I'm Jim Dubois. Kenny Blumenfeld's a meteorologist. <laughs> Kenny Blumenfeld's a climatologist. We'll see you next week.
That's the first time I ever did that. All right. Uh, that's all right. Um, yeah, I ended up babbling a whole bunch. Oh, no, it was um, fun. It was really interesting. It was good.